Welcome to the fourth season of Coming Out and Beyond LGBTQIA Plus Stories. This is Anne-Marie Zanzel, your host, and I am so excited to share some changes to our podcast that are really great, and I think you'll be as excited as I am about it. First of all, we will be dropping a new podcast every other Friday. This is at the request of our listeners who wanted to hear more. Secondly, my producer, Barb Rowlandson, will be joining me as a conversation partner as we discuss things coming out. Barb is a fellow Leighton Lifer and also the mom of a queer kid, and so she has a lot of insight and experience to share with us. And thirdly, we're going to be focusing also on the beyond. Love to hear your coming out stories, but I want to hear the beyond. Sometimes magical things happen when we come out and we have a life that we could have never imagined. Many of us say this is the best thing that we've ever done. So let's get started. Welcome to the show. Tell me your story. I am so excited to welcome to the show today, Dr. Keith Brown. Keith is a speaker, teacher, coach, author, podcaster, and theologian with over 30 years experience within the LGBTQ plus arena. He is a married bisexual man whose mission is to help LGBTQ plus individuals age 45 plus turn their hurting into healing and their healing into happiness. Welcome, Keith. I am so excited to have you on the show today. Thank you very much, Anne-Marie. I appreciate your invitation to be with you. So, Keith, this is a really loaded question. Tell me your story. <laughs> well, that's that's such an easy question, right? Yeah. Yeah, especially uh, when you hit over 50, right? Exactly. Um, you got to put a lot of years in a very short amount of time. So, yeah. uh, I was born and raised in North Carolina, so I am a belt, Bible Belt Southern boy, and um I was raised Southern Baptist in a home in an extended family where church and faith were critical to our existence. And honestly, I, I had a pretty good you know, experience with that most of my life. I I enjoyed going to church. I was very active. Um, in fact, I felt called when I was very young to ministry, but sort of ignored it. Um, I'm very grateful for the education and the exposure and the teaching of about Jesus, et cetera, in that. The problem came when I was younger. I started realizing for myself that I was certainly attracted to girls. You know, I, I, I like the girls, but I also had an attraction to boys and I didn't really understand it. And truthfully, because especially if somebody's looking at this in the video, they can tell you, tell by looking that I'm not 22. Um, <laughs> so back then, the whole idea of bisexuality wasn't even something I'd ever heard of. Absolutely because, not. Because, yeah. you know, even homosexuality was sort of swept under the carpets. It wasn't part of everyday conversation. So bisexuality as an extension was something I didn't even know existed. Mm -hmm. I knew that I was different, but I just tried to say, okay, I'm going to try to ignore that and be me and do things. And, and so I was raised in that culture of the Southern Baptist Church actually was raised and became ordained at the Southern Baptist Church. I went to one of the most 
well-known world-renowned seminaries, evangelical non-denominational seminaries, um, and received so my Can I ask which anyway. one? Dallas Theological? No, but close. <laughs> uh, I went to I went to Gordon Conwell. Oh, Gordon, I know. Yeah, very, very familiar. I was evangelical at one point in my life. So I was yeah. uh, covenant evangelical. A lot of New England or covenants go to Gordon Conwell. Yeah, it's very, very famous. Yeah, yeah. And quite, as I found out when I got there, quite demanding. So, um, you know, I spent all those days, months and years in that that uh, Greek and Hebrew for sure. So mm-hmm. I did that and then went on. Um, I went on to do an independent directed uh, B-Men um, experience, which, you know, whatever, but it, it's there. And um, so quickly, it, can I ask you, what did you focus on with your doctor of doctor of ministry? What did you well, focus on for that? Ironically, the, the school specialized in apologetics and theology. So um, I had to sort of concentrate on faith defense, which has served me pretty well now that I'm trying to defend and stand up for the rights of the LGBTQ plus community. But um, my emphasis of study primarily was always in the area of worship and worship theology and incorporating um, creative arts into the worship experience because I've been a professional comedy magician for over 20 years too. So Mm -hmm. um, I believe incorporating all the things into our experience with God. So that's sort of what that was about. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew from it early on that I was very romantically heterosexual. Mm-hmm. So it really didn't cause issues that way. And so I was I, I was able to sort of be happy in my relationships because I really didn't have to do my be honest with you yeah. because out, out facing it was a heterosexual relationship in fact i'm still today i am married to a cisgender female and mm-hmm. happily married and she obviously knows who i am and what i am and as did my previous marriage uh, wives so it's it's not an issue there but um i was i was young i didn't know what to do with it so i sort of ignored it as best i could well, i understand the the hurtful things that you often hear was not a great part of the preaching at that time in our culture. So I didn't have that initially, but it certainly came more aggressive during, um, you know, the 80s, for instance. That's when I began to hear it much more, and it became a, such a vital, important part of evangelical theology and teaching, et cetera. And what you're talking about is the preaching against the queer community, LGBT. Yes, yes, yes. And that became sort of a a, a banner during the moral majority period and things like that of the 80s. So we were dealing with the AIDS epidemic, which at that time was focused on gays primarily. And the church responded by becoming, and I do believe that AIDS was a major catalyst in the discrimination of the evangelical church. I think that it had a lot to do with it because they associated it with people who were gay and they associated it with, in their minds, evil activity. So I think all that sort of went together. So it became much more prevalent. My problem was I did go, I became ordained, I was I was educated, I have felt called to ministry, but it's really hard to do ministry vocationally when at that time there really was no affirming churches at all. I mean, mm-hmm. 
especially in the South. They did not exist. Were you out as a bisexual at that point? No. Only to my spouse. Mm -hmm. My spouse. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is because, again, there was no way for me to serve vocationally in church ministry. And I was in uh, private education, um, Christian-based education, things like that. I couldn't serve and, in my mind, follow God and serve God the way he gifted me and be out. Because if I did, there would there wouldn't be any jobs. There wouldn't be any opportunities for me. Mm-hmm. Can I so ask that, you, did you, re- did you reconcile your sexuality with your call to ministry at that point? Do you mean did, how I related to God and how God, I felt God related to me and the ability to use me? I, I think um, that's what I'm asking uh, okay. because, you know, because I'm thinking of the 90s, we're about the same age. I think you got a couple months on me. And I'm thinking of the 90s. I've always been involved with church, always, except recently. <laughs> um, um, and what I'm thinking about is here you are, you know you're bisexual, and you are in this very, very conservatively Christian world. And 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 unless you've been in it, you don't understand it. It's, it's, Where, it is, yeah. yeah, who you are as a human being, as a bisexual man, is negated totally. And if people knew about it, it would be considered sinful. But you're not acting on it. I don't know if we were at that point in Christian theology. You're not acting upon it, but you still identify as bisexual. So what I'm, I think what I'm asking is, I'm gonna, did it mess with your head? like as a, as a minister and as an educator? Well, I think so. I mean, um, I, I always have carried a sense of self-worth that was affected, I think, by that um, because the more I heard it, the more I had to own it. And it's hard to, to not feel that and own that when you can express yourself and you can't retali- you know, respond, which I couldn't. It, having to, to, it's one thing being closeted, but it's another being closeted and felt like you have tape over your mouth because of your vocation and right. because of trying to do better good. And I kept telling myself that he's, I don't know if, depending on the listener's faith or their lack thereof, I sh- assume this probably could come into play, but I believed that somehow, in my mind, God brought people into my life for me to help who were dealing with this, not because they knew I was out, not because of they knew who I was, but there was some type of energy of attraction that brought them to me. And I oh. was able to sympathize with them and empathize and and help them understand that they weren't evil. So I was basically trying behind the scenes and behind closed doors, obviously, trying to undo for these other people what other people were was doing to them. Sadly, I wasn't having a lot of I people that, doing that to me. To me. Yeah, right. I, that's what I was right. going to say, because right. no one was undoing that for you at no, all. So. No, it was, tr- it, it was something I had to do myself, because... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, un- I, I get it. <laughs> I, underst- I understand. And, and first of all, I want to, like, Thank you, because I am sure 
in the 1990s when you were doing this work in a very conservative theolog, you know, religious place, you were a breath of fresh air to the people who needed you at that time. I think so. I, I, I still have connection to, in fact, I, I was at, uh, at a Christian school and I was a teacher at, for a period of time and, and, and actually a, a principal for a while. And uh, I'm still connected to some of those students and some of them now who are very openly part of the community. And they still reach out to me and tell me how much um, being there for them made a difference in their lives. So I know that God used me even in the shadow, even in the closet, so to speak. And so I kept telling myself, Keith, you're doing good work. You're, you're loving people. You're doing good work. You're doing all these other things that make a difference in the world. I mean, you're 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 preaching at the funeral of a, a a child that dies in a couple of hours, and you're comforting parents. You're 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 teaching. You're doing all these things that are making a difference. And I kept try, having to tell myself, even though you can't do it in your fullness, you're still doing it the best way you can. And so I took some comfort in that. Mm-hmm. But it is so hard to stay quiet and. I never said anything negative, obviously, about the community myself, and I would excuse myself from conversations, and I would do all these things to try to put up boundaries, but it's still... It's exhausting. It is, because I heard it constantly from family. I mean, I've got all types of Baptist ministers in my family. I heard it all the time, and it will wear you down. It will wear you out for sure. Well, it's exhausting. And it's also, you know, my wife and I were talking about this yesterday um, about, you know, being closeted, but in there, it's a particular kind of loneliness when you're closeted. There's the unconscious closetedness, you know, when people like don't really realize it and like that, how that's sort of how I define mine pretty much. I like, it was like a box in the shelf in my closet that I would take out once in a while. Um, but then what I'm hearing from you is this loneliness of knowing who you were at that point, ministering to other people, and then, you know, not being able to be your full and glorious self that the creator made you to be. Yeah. And I had, I truly had to find that healing myself. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you do. It, it took, it took a while. Um, I still have sometimes when I feel less than, um, I think that's pretty normal, mm-hmm. but, um, I began, I, I came to a, a conclusion in my mind, and this was even before people were, you know, making movies about the clobber verses and writing books about the clobber verses, et cetera. This was well be- before this, I was doing that deep dive for myself. And I was coming to terms with, biblically what I was seeing when I exegeted text in ancient language and canonical um, context and social context. I was doing all that work myself before it was ever, you know, popular. But I also had to come to grips with the fact that in my mind, I told myself, Keith, God made you. And I'm also a rainbow baby. So my odds of existence are even more magnified than the average human. And so Hopefully, everybody knows what a rainbow baby is. No, I, I don't want you to know what you're referring to. Yeah. Okay. Uh, a rainbow baby is a child that is born as a result of a miscarriage. Okay. So, in other words, and I learned this really early, and boy, that's a whole different 
podcast, but it, you know, <laughs> that that'll 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 work with your brain too to realize that if some other child had lived, you would not be here. So, uh, so I took all that, you know, and I said, if God made me and wanted me to be here so much and God made me this way and I truly believe it because I certainly didn't go looking for it or when everybody around me was wow. called you know saying every dirty word to about this that you can imagine then obviously God still can love me and I can still love and serve God and so I I actually came to that belief very early and I'm surprised by that but I did so my own personal relationship I would say that's been pretty strong most of my life. Mm -hmm. So. Mm -hmm. so it's the 90s and you're counseling all these people. And so what happened next? Um, life happened. Mm -hmm. I, I continued to serve. I, I'll be honest with you, Anne-Marie. I continued to, to serve in the environment because um, that was the way that I could make a living. I mean, that's mm -hmm. the way I was trained. That was my connections. I mean, that's what I did. I, I, I even, I was even an approved evangelist for the whole Southern Baptist denomination. And I would have churches fly me around the country to speak and perform. And all of that first went away with my divorce, my wife of 25 years and I divorced, and that's not related to bisexuality. And it's a whole nother, it's something I'm not going to talk about. Well, yeah. And, and, well, of course, in divorcing in the Southern Baptist Church is a no-no. <laughs> exactly. So I yeah. had that strike, and that caused issues in my life, obviously. So that was enough to deal with. So putting this in the mix was even harder. But it did come to a point um, where I got so frustrated and so unhappy. Um, my current wife, bless her heart, she's the most loving, supportive human being, and she's a built-in. She she is a psychologist, so I have a built in, you know, human helper here. Um, but she has helped me a lot in having the confidence to be who I am and be out as mm -hmm. I am. Mm -hmm. And it got to the point where I just could not do it anymore. I no, could you can't. Not, yeah. I could not. So I said, you know what, if I'm going to continue to do the work, I'm going to do it as my authentic self. And I'm going to do it in a loving and caring fashion. And I don't do a lot of debating with people. I, I don't, that's not my thing. My thing is to help and heal and encourage those who are hurting. So you, you met your wife. And so when did you start coming out? Like as a bisexual, did you leave the church? You would have to obviously leave the Southern Baptist yeah. convention yeah. to do that. Well, and to be honest with you, I, had was, a, what came I sort of left the Southern the Baptist <laughs> I know this is not real linear. I'm sorry. I, I didn't of course know. not. None of this is linear. But basically, I left the Southern Baptist Convention when my divorce happened because I was basically washed up at that point. So since then, I actually pastored in um, a, ironically, because I know you're UCC, I was in a Reformed church that was also part of the UCC. Mm -hmm. And then I was in a reformed church that was not in the UCC. They were mm -hmm. very strong against homosexuality. So here I am pastoring, doing my work, doing the best I can, loving on people, trying to help, trying to make them understand the idea of grace. Even if you don't agree, treat people with love and respect and all those kind of things. But finally, I 
a few years ago, it just got to the point I just couldn't do it anymore. So um, I had to start over. I had to reinvent myself. I had to start from scratch because I said, I can't operate within that box anymore. So that's when I started my own business. Uh, my wife and I also have a nonprofit ministry we do, but my own business is basically out and honest. And mm -hmm. that has felt great. Um, even though it's painful, obviously the responses you get, but um, it feels right. It feels like it's what I need to be doing. You and I've had very similar paths. I was always involved with the church. I had a very good, I had, even though I was, I was raised Catholic and I generally had a positive experience with church because I grew up in a chaotic home. So church provided a place of safety and order for me. Catholic church is very liturgical. So I always knew what was going to happen. So we did the same thing every single time. And from a as kid, Anglican. yeah, as a kid from a chaotic home, it provided a lot of comfort and peace with me. And I was a good student and I was a girl, which helps in Catholic school. <laughs> and, um, and I excelled in academics. So um, I, you know, I got a lot of praise and a lot of, you know, I got a lot of good came out of my religious education. And I got a really, in Catholicism, I think a lot like Southern Baptist was much more like the Catholicism I grew up with was much more liberal than a lot of, of what is now. Um, it was, I went, I started school in 1970. So like it was six years after Vatican II. I was actually one of the first female altar servers I was the first emails, female altar server in my church, but also in the diocese, which was pretty big back then. I didn't know that, but apparently I did have some sort of call, you know, <laughs> and, and then put it away because I wanted to have family and children. And there was no place for me in ministry in the Catholic church being a girl. And then we were in the evangelical covenant for a while, my family and I, and that's where I started my call to ministry. But I had to leave that denomination because the opportunities of as a female minister were small. And also the way they, I couldn't, I didn't know, I was still, I was, I had under, I began at that point, I had begun to understand that I was not straight and I was exploring my sexuality in the sense of thinking about it. And, you know, my husband, my then husband knew all about it and everything like that. Um, and I knew that like, but I just still didn't consider myself lesbian. And um, so I ended up um, exploring all that and knew that like, I just couldn't, like when they were telling me to sign a document telling me I couldn't bless a gay marriage and that I couldn't marry a queer couple, I was like, I can't do this. And so they were, I did my ordination paper and they they told me I wasn't covenant enough and I got very, very upset and hurt by that at the time. But yes, they were right. I wasn't covenant enough. And that's when I left. And I eventually ended up at the UCC and stuff like that. Um, one of the hardest parts for me, Keith, when my coming out was my dark night of this soul. I really felt when I finally, I so my coming out was as a result of my ordination. Um, I was ordained UCC um, three days after, or excuse me, the day after I took my sister to the airport and I said, you know, my 
ex-husband and I are, you know, we're really struggling. He wasn't my ex then. We're really struggling again. And, you know, I was, had been working for as a hospice chaplain for six years. And I said, uh, I really need a soft place to land. And, um, and so I went back into therapy. And so that's, again, when I realized, you know, it, this had been a 10 year process, and I'm giving you the the really Reader's Digest version and seriously dating both of us right now (laughs) because you're smiling and nodding so you understand what I mean. And I I realized like I all of a sudden felt so distant from God for like a couple of years. Um, and And I hesitate to even use the word God. I've sort of gotten to source um, universe, I, I know because God is such a loaded term. So I generally don't use it because it is so loaded for people. And you and I, every person in the world has a different definition of what that means. It's not, you know, and so I felt incredibly separate. And then I was talking to my wife and her cousin, who is an out gay man who lives in WeHo, West Hollywood, and um, sings in his Methodist choir every Sunday. He's a, you know, he told Tonda when he was young, he either wanted to be a pastor or actor and he wasn't out yet, but Tonda knew he was gay. It's like, honey, I think you better be an actor. (laughs) But I think, I think honestly, Mark still could be a pastor if he wanted. They were all the same age. And um, they both said to me that they experienced like this real separation from God for a while and were quite agnostic and, um, no, they separate like atheists for a little while, and then they actually return to their faith after several years. Have you found that with other people? And have you experienced that? Um, short answer is yes. But uh, <laughs> personally, um, I have gone through desert times when mm-hmm. I talk about faith with God. Um, mm-hmm. It's one of my deepest was when I pretty, because of my divorce, I lost everything occasionally mm-hmm. for, for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, there were other instances. And I think that there were, there were times when, I don't know that I ever questioned if there was a God, but I think I questioned whether God really cared about me and whether mm-hmm. God would do for me and bless mm-hmm. me and use me because there were so many things coming against me for a period of time. But one of the things that I have seen, Emery, in my work is that a lot of people, and this is especially true because I, when I was in the church environment, obviously I, I ministered to everything from teenagers all the way up. It was it was all ages and all types and all <laughs> kinds of stuff. But now that I've pretty much tried to focus on older folks. I know a lot of those people have been raised with faith, and some of them have even tried to leave that faith, but yet it comes back because it's such a part of who they are. It's a part of what's ingrained in them. And to me, and and um, even Brene Brown wrote a book, and she quoted in that book about 50%, 45%, I think maybe it's 45% at least, of people who were raised with faith in their recovery, in their starting over, if you will, Faith still became a very important part of that. It's hard to walk around away from it. And a lot of times people who are older do have a hard time. They will they will go away for a while, but many times I've seen people actually come back to their faith. 
and find comfort in a new and affirming and a faith that they've developed, not necessarily the faith of their past, obviously, but a faith that becomes very real to them. And we need to hold space for that. And, and, and a lot of people within the LGBTQ community do not. They don't, you know, there's a bashing of that. And well, because there's been so much pain in her. It, it, there is. But and that's and, and we see that a lot. And that's the reason obviously I work a lot with older folks, because honestly, when you are 50 and 60 and 70 years old, you do think differently and you have experienced life differently and you've been through different seasons that a 25-year-old hasn't. And that's not to say that a 25-year is bad or wrong or anything else. It's just different. And so we have to be understanding of that because I think a lot of younger people want all people to understand them and get it. But yet we need the same saying, okay, some of the older people think this way as well. And we need to have love and grace to that too. Mm-hmm. At least that's my little soapbox today. <laughs> <laughs> so what type of people, what type of people search you out and 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 work with? And who do you what do you who do you work with? <laughs> um I have worked with every age and every possible part of the community but I have purposely as I have reached my no longer younger years I've purposely realized that my best work is probably with people who are older people perhaps some of my folks are not out of the closet and I honestly work with a lot of bisexual people bisexual people primarily that are in hetero facing relationships or presenting relationships and don't know what to do with that. They are, they feel lost. They feel confused. They feel scared. And so I tend to attract those people a lot because then they're done that, you know, bought the t-shirt, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And I also deal with a lot of people that are dealing with the abuse of the church uh, as who they are. And that is a lot of trauma that people are dealing with. So um, I'm able to come at that as well with sensitivity and and understanding because I've I've experienced it. And mm-hmm. yet I'm still someone who holds probably a little bit more orthodox faith than a lot of people within the community. Um, mm-hmm. I don't apologize for that. That's my faith. But, um, you know, maybe a little bit more orthodox than some, but, but I get I get the struggle. It's real. Well, I think in deconstructing faith is like, it doesn't mean you get rid of everything, right? There are some things that you will retain. What I found is I went to an LGBTQ church here in Nashville. Um, unfortunately, it's no longer around. Um, and what I found and and for me, which was really interesting, because I consider myself pretty liberal, liberal theolo- theologically wise, um, is that a, the, even though the members of the church were often out or maybe semi out, you know, like everybody in the church knew they were partnered, but I don't know how many people in the real world knew they were partnered. Um, they still retain this incredibly conservative faith of you know, for me, like, I don't refer to God with male pronouns. Um, And like, 
you know, when we were first, when I first went there, you know, we were still singing the very evangelical um, praise songs from the 1990s with a lot of uh, male pronouns. And I remember saying, I was on the council for about a minute. And then I was like, I can't do that. <laughs> it was just not the place for me as a minister. And I said, you realize we have trans people coming here. We should not be using any pronouns whatsoever. And they were all like, they were actually really good. They like, they just never had thought of it. You know what I mean? They were like, oh yeah, you're right. <laughs> you know, But they had never thought about any of like inclusive language or anything like that because they had been right. It just wasn't part of their journey. They, they, a lot of these people don't mean anything negative about it. It's just, if you've, sp it, it's like if, if you've spent um, 45 years saying tomato instead of tomato, it's hard to suddenly start saying tomato or thinking that way because it's been part of your existence, part of your thinking, part of your vernacular for years. So I give credit to the fact that a lot of people don't do certain things on purpose to hurt. They simply are, are responding out of their own, you know, experience, their own authenticity, their own, their own habit, if you will, at times. And so I don't know. I guess I'm a little bit more grace-centered in that than mm -hmm. you know, maybe I should be, but mm -hmm. uh, I am. So when people use um, like I'm just thinking when people come to you and still are quite theological, theologically conservative. Mm -hmm. um you give them this you your job is not to change that <laughs> your mm -hmm. job is to help them find space and sometimes these conservative theological religions that don't give them space so some of your clients still stay in the catholic church for example even though they are you know it, it depending on the diocese, you know, depending on the diocese, you know, can be either sort of welcoming and affirming to not. Right. Yeah. Well, I'm an, I'm an ordained Anglican priest, but I am part of a communion that is affirming and open to the LGBT community. But if I just said Anglican priest, one of the major Anglican denominations in this country is not. And yes. so, you know, you just have to but see, we both operate within a lot of the bigger picture theology of the Anglican tradition, um, you know, around the table, around, you know, sacraments, things like that. So, you know, the, the same with Catholic. As you said, I have I have active client right now who is Roman Catholic um, and is very happy there, but also has found LGBT community within his church. Mm -hmm. So, you know, mm -hmm. it. it, it I think that people have the ability to do that. And no, I do not try to change anybody's theological beliefs or slants. Um, I give people the space to feel and believe the way they wish. Um, I will help answer their questions as best I can from historical and multiple theological slants and perspectives. Um, you know, I was, for instance, um, justification or sanctification or whatever, I may they ask i may give them seven or eight historical views around that concept but it is up to them to discover for themselves which the concept that they choose to own and believe so you mentioned the i, I want to just ask you one question before we wrap up you know you mentioned the clobber passages and 
And when you hear those clobber passages or somebody comes to you and they've been literally clobbered with them, how do you help them just deconstruct that for our listeners who um, have heard this their whole life and um, are just not sure what to do with it? Well, and I get it because here's here's the thing that I that I see and believe personally. There is such a movement of the cognitive analytical understanding of these verses, mm-hmm. thinking that if we can convince people that these scriptures say something different, which certainly you can do if you do good interpretational skills. Now, having said that, I'm also going to say, and this gets me in hot water sometimes, there are also extremely smart conservative theologians, biblical interpreters who can make a case against as well. So you can hear this, and I've been in these conversations firsthand. Mm -hmm. These conversations can exist, and there is credibility to both in their research. But what I keep trying to get against people is that you are you're trying to understand, you're trying to get this answer. But the problem is often not in the cognitive understanding of the concept. It is in the emotion and the feeling and the trauma that resides inside the body and the and the feelings. And therefore, I think it has to be a little bit more of a spiritual change than just a brain change or an understanding change. And I think a lot of people, they keep reading this material over and over again, but it's not sinking in. And the reason for this is because they can't get it into their subconscious mind and faith because the gatekeeper is saying, no, this is this is not true, even though you tell me it's true. And they keep seeking more and more and more affirmation of the fact that they can be gay without owning the truth themselves in a personal and a real relationship with God. And so I concentrate more on that. And let's get back to the bigger picture of who God is, who the example of Jesus is, who the greater teaching of the scripture is. And let's get more into that impact on who we are and our life and our hearts and our minds. The other will come, but don't start there. Start with the other bigger picture and work work that. You, you know, you're sort of reminding me of when I was, I did, I did four units of clinical pastoral education, and then I did two as a supervisor in training. And then I said, I don't want to do this. <laughs> but I, I, could, remember, I, I never wanted to be a chaplain, so power to you. Yeah, um, I did, actually. I really, really, that's why I went into ministry. Um, I've done a whole bunch of different stuff, but I really did. And um, But I remember my uh, CPE supervisor who said to me, you're thinking with your, that's, that's an, that is a intellectual word. It is not an emotional word. So what I'm hearing you say is those passages are always going to be there. You can find reasons why you should reject them. You can find reasons why you should accept that, accept them, but really that is immaterial that it really is your emotional work to accept yourself as a human being, how you were wonderfully and beautifully made by the creator. And that's what I'm hearing you say. That's right. 
Yeah, it's a it's a deeper work. Um, if if it were just hearing these explanations and reading these books about the serious exegetical study of the words and the content, if if that was all that took, then you could read a quick uh, read one of these books that yeah. are, and you would, you'd be suddenly healed. It's not, and you can keep hearing this over and over again. And it's become very popular, obviously, on social media among people that are LGBT to keep talking about this. But it's not bringing the healing that people want it to bring because it's it's not reaching them at a deeper level. And that's, in my opinion, what needs to happen. I could talk to you for hours. <laughs> I'll have to come on your show and we'll talk about yeah, it. More. You are coming on my show because I want to <laughs> flip the switch and flip the table. Jesus style on you. So, Keith, did you have a coming out song? <laughs> I know um, you, you you like sent me a laughing emoji. When yeah, I, I asked that yeah. question for everybody. Yeah, you, you you did. And and I, those three last questions you sent me, OK, I want you to. I'm like, OK, this is a little difficult. I never really thought about it. I can't say that I actually had a coming out song, but one that I like is um, either Frank Sinatra or Elvis. Take your pick. I did it my way. Um, you certainly did, sir. That's that's been my life. Um, mm-hmm. I don't care how you tell me to do it or how I, I'm going to do it my way. And that's it. Took me a while to figure it out, but I got I did. I did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. Um, a book or a movie that really, really changed your view of the world. Um, I can't say that I'm a big movie person. I mean, I like to see some movies and stuff, but I'm an avid reader. And people can, you know, they're, they're all types of motivational books. In fact, uh, you know, I, I mentioned Brene Brown earlier. She's put out some wonderful books, et cetera. But I, I, for me personally, Anne-Marie, it always goes back to the book that I poured so much time, energy, and heart into in my life. And it's the, the Bible. Mm-hmm. It is... It has been the the cornerstone of my whole life. Mm-hmm. And even though I'm very misfit to how it teaches sometimes and, and imperfect and how it is telling me to live out, it still is an important book for me. And well, I, it's I, ever changing, right? Because the eyes of the 20-year-old Keith is very different than the eyes of the Almost six year old game. <laughs> Less than 30 days. You're out of my oh, I know my yeah. wife turned 60 in December and she was like, oh, and I'll be 60 in February. So I get it. <laughs> so, yeah, but you know, like yeah, that's but- the one thing if I'm, you know, that's the one thing with the Bible is that you do go through like something that you read, you know, 10 years ago and then you read it again and you're in a different place and you see it with different eyes and, and very fresh and fresh eyes, you know? So I think it's one of those books that there's other books like that too. Um, are you, never mind. I won't ask yet. <laughs> um, there's other books like that too, that when you read it again, they really have different meanings because your heart is in a different place. Oh yeah. I mean, well, and I read the notebook when I finished seminary, I had, I had read thousands and thousands of pages every month, you know, all this deep stuff. And when I graduated seminary, I was tired. And my my wife at the time, the first wife of 25 years, she said, she read a fiction. And I go, like, what is that? A fiction? I mean, I I never read fiction. So I sat down with a Nicholas Sparks book and probably- Which is light. 
yeah, which is light reading, exactly. But it it inspired me. And ironically, I read one of the books, a notebook, or won't remember, I'll remember which one. And my wife came home later that day. I was just reclining. And she said, so did you start reading the book I gave you? I said, yeah, I actually finished it. She looked at me crazy. She said, what do you think? I said, well, I think I can do that. And so I, I started the next day writing fiction, and now I have several books of fiction published. <laughs> so I guess that that Nicholas Spark kind of inspired me. <laughs> he inspired you. Yeah, he inspired me. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. You know, it's funny that you mentioned that because after I, you know, I went to seminary. I went to Yale Divinity School, oh, and I went nice. with four kids between the ages of two and 14. I look back at that now and say, how the hell did I do that? I really like, I, I have no idea how I did it, but, but one thing, the result of that was that for, I don't know, I, I did, I graduated in 2009. So I was, you know, I'm always a late bloomer perpetual. And, um, I, I didn't, I haven't really read in like the last 12 years. I mean, I read little articles and, you know, I'll read something from the Atlantic journal or something like that. Um, I should have turned off my phone before we started taping today. Um, and I'll read something like that, but I, for, for years, I just stopped reading and I like a rake. And I recently read a book. It was really light reading, but I was like, boy, I like this. I should do this. <laughs> you mass getting your master's degree when you're older, I think makes you sort of like exhausted after doing it. So, Absolutely. um, how do you describe your life today, Keith? Um, I think that I am more authentically Keith than I've ever been in my entire life. Mm-hmm. And that is good and bad. That is ups and downs. Um, but I would also say that I am the most motivated and mission driven, perhaps, than I've ever been as well. Mm-hmm. Because I, if, if, if people can ever think about me when I'm gone, I just want them to think that two words or basically two ideas, that he was kind and that he cared. Mm-hmm. And I, I really want to help people heal. I really do. And I've seen so much pain around sexual identity. And I feel good about myself and where I've come. And, and I just want other people to feel that. So I guess that's what drives me right now. I understand. Um, thank you, Keith. I have thank enjoyed you. this community, this, <laughs> um, I said community. <laughs> I've enjoyed this conversation immensely and I hope we get to work together in the future. I think we could do some wonderful things together because, um, I think both of us have this incredible experience of living in perceived to be straight in the straight world for a really long time. And also we have been out members of the queer community for a shorter time. You know, I I came out in 2016. And so I I really believe it's a superpower (laughs) because we can see both sides and we can. And and I, I, I often find that queer people are some of the most spiritual people I know. And they've been so hurt by religion and, um, Sometimes I just want to throw my hands away and walk away from it all. But um, I, get that. I, think I, I really I, do get that. Yeah. And but I do think that 
healing and in developing a relationship with the creator or whatever you call your higher power is so incredibly healing that no matter what clobber passages is read out loud, you just sort of roll your eyes and go on. So thank you for today. I really, really, really enjoyed this. You've been listening to Coming Out and Beyond, LGBTQIA plus stories with Anne-Marie Zanzel. New episodes of the Coming Out and Beyond podcast drop every other Friday. You can tune in at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and at annemariezanzel.com. Be sure to hit subscribe when tuning in so you never miss an episode. And for more resources, articles, videos, and a free downloadable guide for coming out later in life, visit annemariezanzel.com.